he was offering me more than double what I would have quoted him, right? And I said, nah, let's do it like this. And I said half the price, which was what I wanted anyway. And the guy seemed shocked. And I was like, dude, no disrespect, but I don't think you've done the numbers right. Like if your venue can hold this many people and you're charging that much at the door, but you want to pay me this, you can't make any money off this. I need you to make money so that you want to get me back. And if you make money, then we can do this three times a year forever. Hip Hop Hustle Podcast, man. You heard it here first. He's not playing. No, Aaron's not playing. No fucking game. Oh, don't threaten me with the guitar. You got your ear to the streets, man. Much love to all the people down under. And make sure y'all follow the Hip Hop Hustle Podcast, man, because they're giving y'all nothing but the real shit. But yeah, man, appreciate the intro, bro. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's kick it off. Shout out to the whole Hip Hop Hustle Podcast. What's up with it? Welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle podcast. Uh, super excited about this interview. Uh, I've got the one and only DJ Nino Brown. And for those of you who aren't aware of DJ Nino Brown, um, he is one of the amazing Aussie uh, DJs out there in the hip hop R&B scene. Uh, worked with some unbelievable artists. So you've opened and and been on stage with Eminem, Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, uh, Rihanna, Fat Joe, Busta Rhymes, the list goes on and on. You've worked with companies like Nike as well, one of my favorite shoe companies, um, and also worked with some amazing, um, amazing like Aussie artists as well, um, Justice Crew, Tim O'Matic. Um, so man, it's pretty amazing the the resume that you've built up in terms of you know i'm sure when you started you were like just an aussie kid just like entering this this music game and now all of a sudden you've got this resume of accomplishments that it's pretty incredible yeah man like when i um first started uh it was back in the days of buying vinyl and carrying crates and uh, records, people that don't know, records were expensive. Like it'd be like $15 per song and you needed two copies of every song. So that was $30. And then you needed another two copies to keep for when you wore out the first two copies. So I used to spend a lot of money on records. And to be honest, the only goal I'd really set for myself when I started out DJing and doing a few gigs was I was just excited and hoping I'd be able to afford my and pay for my vinyl addiction. Well, so, I think yeah, you can so more I than know. pay for it now. Yeah, did all right. It's <laughs> going well. Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, it feels like it's only continuing to grow, right? Like you're only getting more momentum. I mean, especially after COVID. COVID, I think, was tough for a lot of artists because, you know, especially for someone like you who has performed with a lot of these people who come and do tours, like it must have been a bit of a, a challenging period. Yeah, yeah. Um to answer the first party question, yeah, everything's still, you know, I think when you love that old saying, when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Um, and, and I love this shit, man. Like, um, I think that's what a lot of people don't get about me. It's just like how much love I have for this, every part of it on stage, off stage in the studio. And that just, um, you know, I don't even think of it as like, you know, I'm working hard. I'm just doing what I love. Uh, and, and I'm always trying to elevate, for myself, you know, for the scene, for the next generation of DJs, for everybody involved, man. And and what you're saying about COVID, yeah, COVID was rough. Um, you know, my my heritage is Italian, and uh, most of, especially my father's side, family are in Italy and southern Italy. So I got a bit of a heads up about COVID, 
and uh I feel like in some ways I was a little luckier than most. Um, I was able to sort of like, you know, shut things down a little, getting ready. People thought I was a bit crazy for that two weeks before they shut us down. So I was able to move out of my studio because my lease had ended and I got a few things kind of set up. And, uh, and, you know, for somebody like me, probably like 90% of my income comes from touring and, and live shows. So like, yeah, when COVID hit, it was rough, but, um, you know, the government, Obviously, the government did plenty of things that people got frustrated at, but they did financially help out, and I think Australians were very lucky in that respect. So that that kept me afloat. So I am super happy that we're all back outside. And for somebody like myself that plays a lot of uh, touring shows around Australia, it's, it's been coming back slowly and steadily, but, yeah, it's definitely there. Did it feel weird coming back? Like Because it was like two years, really, of like, you know, the – the, and for those of people who didn't, who weren't in Australia, like there was a real divide between the states. So like every state had its own rules. Like I, w- I was in Victoria, so we had really harsh lockdowns. And so WA had their own rules. And so every state kind of did their own thing. So as an artist, was it is it weird being back out and kind of seeing how each state has bounced back? It was. It, w- it was more weird for me because – you know, I haven't had a day job in like over 20 years of any kind. So to be honest, it, it was just weird at first not traveling. And, and you know, everyone likes to be like, yeah, man, I'm doing this and I tour and I but like, you know, we jokingly call me the, the touring triple OG, but I, I'd be interstate two or three times a week. You know, I'd take 200 flights a year. And, you know, I've got like all this luggage that's kind of pre-packed. So to not travel was weird and then i started doing things like you know when when it was open like going to the local pub and like kind of normal in my mind normal people shit so that was weird getting back outside and djing wasn't too bad uh i'm on the radio quite a lot on my fm and cater in sydney and a few other stations my fm in new zealand so i was still actively djing from my uh temporary studio at the time I guess when COVID hit in 2020, the first show that I did back outside was with Tim O'Matic and Savage, actually, um, in Darwin, which was in October 2020. And that was a little weird because it was sort of like, you know, I'd never not DJed for so long, but it was more like, I guess when you're DJing weekly, when a new song comes in, it just sort of evolves where now I had all this music maybe for the last six months and it was kind of like, you know, what are people going to like and what are they going to gravitate to? And it was interesting because um, to a degree it was like people were stuck in time. When they hit a club, they kind of wanted to hear the music that they heard last time they'd hit a club. And I felt like unless a record was a smash like WAP by Cardi B and Megan The Stallion was out at the time, that was newish, and that was obviously a smash, right? So that was big, but I remember there wasn't really a lot of new, new records that were big. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a little weird, man. Took a bit of getting used to, but and then after that show in October with those guys, and that was epic because Savage, Tim O'Matic, myself, um, huge club up in Darwin, and then it was like no gigs again, you know, for a few months because <laughs> Darwin was open. You could go to Darwin, and that's where all the individual state stuff kind of made no sense to somebody like me because I couldn't perform in melbourne melbourne had all their strict rules and then i couldn't even get to wa i probably couldn't even get to brisbane but all of us could have met in darwin 
So we just couldn't come home. That's the yeah. thing. We just couldn't come well, you, home. You when you couldn't get back in. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But I mean, like, it is interesting though because I felt personally like over that period of time, music kind of did stand still for a little bit. I think, you know, even globally, musicians were like, all right, what's the landscape of what we're all dealing with? Like, I know there were COVID raps and like we were all trying to navigate it and people were dealing with their own kind of versions of lockdowns and restrictions. And it definitely felt like, especially 2020, it was like a real holding period of time. Like there, when I look back, there's nothing that really super stands out for me in 2020. Maybe it's because I, I forget, like I was just preoccupied by lockdown, but it also feels like everyone was just trying to survive as opposed to like really bring yeah. on the next wave. I mean, there was there was a lot of music and and it was weird. It's like there was a lot, but then there wasn't a lot that maybe that stood out, you know. I definitely think the Australian hip-hop scene flourished during COVID. I think um, there was a lot of people with, you know, the creative juices were bu- bubbling. And, uh, you know, I remember sneaking in uh, artists into studios and, you know, there was a bit of that going on. And I definitely feel, I mean, it's a super healthy time. It's probably the best time ever of Australian hip-hop. And a lot of that came through COVID, like a whole new generation. Um the overseas stuff, yeah, like, I mean, um, in 2020, I know WAP was huge, and uh, but but you're right, like, it, w- it was definitely a weird time, man, definitely. And I think, you know, I think we were all waiting for a few artists to drop their big albums anyway. Like, Drake had his album he was going to drop, and then Kanye, and obviously Kendrick just dropped his album. Um, yeah. But, like, but, yeah, it, it feels weird, like, because I grew up on American hip-hop, so to see Aussie hip hop is like a new evolution for me as a fan to be like, all right, now I got to get used to the Aussie sound because I'm not used to listening to Aussie accents as weird as it sounds. I always say to everyone, like, I have to adapt as a fan to be like, all right, I'm, I'm listening to a different type of sound, a different accent, a different skill set in terms of a rhyme scheme. But it is awesome to see Australia like really begin to love and wrap its arms around hip hop, which never happened when I was growing up as a kid. Yeah, and, and you know, Aussie hip-hop has always existed and I think for a very long time it was um, – there used to be a whole accent debate and people would get super upset if you sounded American and then I, I felt like there were people that were sort of almost exaggerating the the Oka Aussie accent because then they didn't really speak that way. And then, as you know, like – Australia is a very multicultural place. Like it just depends who you are and how you sound, you know, like I said, I'm, my heritage is Italian. Majority of my friends are either, you know, South American or they're definitely not Anglo-Australians and they don't sound traditionally Australian, but they probably don't sound American either. And so it depends and people get influenced. And and I think for a long time there was, there was a big accent thing going on and, I think the newest generation, the most beautiful part of it is for a long time, and I saw this when I was uh, starting my career, that people that were releasing music, they wanted the nod from the people that had already released music. But I think the newer generation, they don't care if you like their music or not. They're like, fuck you, this is us, love us or hate us, you know? And that's how art's supposed to be. So if it's, you know, um, some kids from Western Sydney that sound a bit like UK drill rappers, 
that's cool. That's them, you know. Or if you sound American, you know, it's as long as it's good. And there's like so much talent in Australia now. Like it's it's a phenomenon. Like I used to rarely play Australian. There just wasn't that much Australian hip hop that I was excited by uh, on the radio. Well, that I could play when I was DJing on the radio. But now I'd probably say 50% of everything I play is is coming out of Australia. Which is interesting because I think not only were like I think they were always doing it, but like you said, I think fans weren't gravitating towards it. There was like a missing link. Oh, man, it was, they, had, they definitely had fans. It was just, you know, it was a very niche fan base, you know, and there were certain groups that stood out. Like there were groups like the Hilltop Hoods who are megastars, you know. Yeah, Bliss and Yeah, in 2019, the Hoods, I think, probably had the biggest Australian, all-Australian hip-hop tour of all time. You know, there's, there's groups like Bliss and Esso, you know, and they they have their core fan base. and um you know, to a degree, it's almost like a white skatery sort of vibe, hip hop fan base. You know, and now there's just kids from all walks of life, all nationalities. You know, doing their version of hip hop, and um, it's 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 a beautiful thing. Do you think now that the, there's a difference between like, you know, we're starting to see Aussies do well overseas? Like, I think I, I think that's what I've started to notice is like. Aussies can now are now going overseas and actually selling shows and tours, and we're seeing like a lot more oh, of yeah, that man. type. Yeah, and even things like you know, um, let's use One Four as an example. Um, they were obviously influenced by a UK drill, right? But there are artists in the UK, drill artists that are like giving One Four their props and they're dope, you know. And like, I think that's the thing. And I think technology has definitely played a part of it too, but the music coming out of Australia looks, you know, music video-wise and sounds sonically as good as anything in the world, you know. And and you're right. I mean, we've got Kid Leroy as an example. Kid Leroy's, you know, he's huge. He's a worldwide phenomenon now, you know. Um, and even groups like Bliss and Esso, they've got an international fan base. They tour in North America. They tour, they tour through Europe, you know. Uh, Manu Crooks has toured through Europe. So, yeah, man, it's 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 exciting, you know. Isn't it interesting though that like hip hop artists have quite large and fanatic fan bases in Europe? Like, it's always fascinated me that, and I've spoken to other people, and they're like, some of them don't even speak the language, but it's like this feeling, and there's the sound that they can just love. Like, their English is not their first language, and they can kind of like mimic the sounds but they may not necessarily understand but still they're encapsulated by it it's yeah it's a phenomenon i um i've done a couple of runs through the uk and um i, I went out to switzerland once and i dj'd for an artist and yeah i got to experience that firsthand and it, it's crazy and even you know i i sort of pre-covid especially i'd, I'd hit asia once every year or two and do some shows out there like Thailand, Indonesia, and uh, same thing. English is people's first language, but you know they they love hip hop and and the whole vibe. And so it's yeah, man, it's it's a phenomenon. But Europe, like if you talk to any, especially American rappers, and Europe really loves you know real hip hop, nineties hip hop, lyric driven hip hop. And like you said, it's interesting. Excuse me, especially they don't speak the language, but um, yeah, man, it's. it's it's a wild world. It, it kind of 
reminds me because I think the trap kind of sound reminded me that the voice was like an instrument because lyrics weren't necessarily the driving factor of what they were doing. But now that I can listen to, uh, now that I like, I like trap music. I love the people are doing different things and people are doing things with their voices. It makes more sense to me that even though you don't understand the language, the sound of the voice is still pleasant to the ear because it works with the beat. Um, There's a cadence to it. Like I think that makes more sense now. And, I think that's a part of hip hop that the more you listen to, the more you appreciate. Like there are some artists that I just can't get behind purely because their voice doesn't hit me the right way. And then there are other artists that I'm absolutely obsessed with because their voice is unique or it's deeper than usual or it's more high pitched. Like Lil Wayne is one of those people who's got such a unique voice that you know he's on a record as soon as he starts going. So like I think the voice is such an important part that sometimes we forget about. Definitely, man. Um yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, for you, like, because I, I went to go see Eminem in the 2019 Rapture. Were you there for the Sydney shows or did you also – actually, no, I saw you went to the Melbourne show as well. So you were there for the 86,000? I did the whole run, yeah. Yep. How was that experience? It was insane. Um, I didn't get as much footage as I would have liked because they were very strict about cameras and whatnot backstage. Eminem is very private. Um, everyone always asks. I, I did not get to meet Eminem. Uh, he's he's a pretty reclusive guy. Uh, but the whole experience was was insane. And what was really cool on that run was, uh, you know, a couple of interesting facts. Like no one city had enough sound gear. So there was a day break between every show because at the end of the show, they'd break down the whole arena and basically ship it to the next place. So I think the run was something like, it was like Wednesday, Brisbane, Friday, Sydney. And I remember being there and at the end of the night, you know, people would be leaving and they'd start taking off shit apart and it'd be semi-trailers and semi-trailers, you know. And they'd build the backstage area and the stage exactly the same in each city. So it was wild. It was like you get to another city, but you knew exactly where to go because everything was the same, you know? That's um, crazy. But yeah, apparently that Melbourne show broke a record and they told me it was the biggest concert in the Southern Hemisphere of all time, which sounds kind of crazy because I feel like I've seen these things in South America where there's like hundreds of thousands of people, but they might be a festival and not a concert. But look, it was insane, man. And um, I went out and watched... You know, some of the show, I've got some footage from the audience side of it. And like when he did things like uh, Lose Yourself and, and all the, the lights went out and everyone had their phones or cigarette lighters up, like it was uh, it was definitely a moment, man. And Eminem's just, just a phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I was there at that show and like I just remember like just the crowd just, it's, it's like nothing you've ever heard before, 86,000 people just... And yeah, especially the classics, insane. like when he plays songs like Criminal um, and just everybody gets so into it. And Hilltop Hoods opened as well. And that was when they played Cosby Sweater, that just went off. Like it just yeah. such an unreal experience. That was actually the first time, I believe it or not, that I'd ever seen Hilltop Hoods perform. Uh, I'd known the guys for many years. I'd obviously known of them from day dot. And I uh, had a relationship, uh, particularly with Suffer, 
and especially when I was doing the Blazing albums. Let me flex with my plucks in the background. <laughs> but uh, when I was doing the Blazing albums, you know, they'd send me drops and freestyles and different things. Uh, but we never really got to hang out. And and when I saw them perform, I realized why they are the success that they are because you know their show is it's super tight. And um and you know like everything when people are succeeding, people like to hate on them. People always talk shit about their hilltop hoods. And I just always say to them, I go, listen, man, those guys, they will outperform anybody, you know? And luckily enough for me, they loved what I did warming up for them. And they invited me to go out on the Great Expanse tour later that year. Excuse me. So that was uh, incredible. But but yeah, Eminem, Melbourne, the 87,000 people, like, and we, you know, with COVID and everything COVID-related, there was a period, and I don't want to say I was depressed because – it wasn't like I was suffering depression, but there were times I guess I'd reflect and maybe be sad thinking, fuck, I may never get to do that again. And, or we may never be able to experience that as fans, you know, that that really might've been the biggest thing that we'll see for a long while. But yeah, that, that was just, it was a phenomenon, man. They, they gave us North face bags as like tour gifts with the M&M tour shit embroidered on it. Like it is so dope. I've never used it. Um, I figure if I use it, someone's going to steal it anyway at the airport. But uh, yeah, well, I would a- never use it. Like, I, there's no chance. I would just keep it. I just keep it's. It would be my own. Like, just for my own type of like, you know, to be like, this is what I did, and you know, for your your kids, grandkids, family, just to be like, hey, check it out. You know, especially because yeah, you know Eminem will go down as one of the greatest artists of our generation. And it's just amazing to be a part of it and to to witness something like that. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it would feel surreal to be, you know, part of what made that show so amazing. Oh, it was it was a thing, man. Like, and I've done a lot of tours and a lot of concerts. And um, Eminem came out in 2015, and uh, a guy named M Phases, who's a super talented producer who's done records for Eminem. He got the gig to DJ on that too. I know it came down between him and I, and I was so upset. And, and you know, like not mad or hating on M Phases because he he produced a record for Eminem. Like, what the fuck? That's huge. It's insane. You know what I mean? So, but in my mind, I like, I'm the DJ DJ. Like, I will tear that shit down. And I remember, you know, being in my feelings about it. And it's not like Eminem tours every year or two. So I didn't think um, Eminem may come back. And, and if he did, it may be at a stage. Because like with any of these sort of shows, you've got to be at a point of your career where you're the right person for the job. You know, I'm a big believer in that. And I thought to myself, yeah, he may not come back in 10 years, for 10 years. And in 10 years, I may not be the right guy for that show. So when he came back and I got the call, um, I was excited and yeah, it was it was definitely a moment for me, definitely a career highlight. Cause which which tour was that? Because he'd had the that tour was, um, with Lil Wayne and then he came back with Kendrick Cole. It was the Kendrick and Cole one and Action Bronson. That would have been sick. Cause I went to that show as well. That was like a hip hop festival. That was crazy. Yeah, Three sixty opened like, as well. That was insane. I was like, M phases, I love you, bro, but I was so jealous. I was like, fuck. Um, but you know, that's what life does sometimes, but yeah, it, it worked out in the end, man. So I was super happy to tick that off my, off my bucket list. 
100%. Well, it actually reminded me because like you, you have a, you were, you've worked with Nike and I've, I'm always like, oh, tell me about Nike sneakers because I'm obsessed with Air Force Ones and Jordans and shit like that. But what did you do with Nike? Um, they did, I'm trying to think when it was, it might've been 10 years back, but it was, it was one of the anniversaries of the Air Force One. I think it might've been the 20, cause what's it now? 35. So it might've been the 25th. Yeah. I think so. Around and, that. Yeah. And I'd done various things for Nike. I played some of their events and, um, had a relationship and, and you know, they, they gift artists things sometimes. And I used to get blessed with some stuff from time to time, which was always super dope. And then, yeah, they did this massive, super cool party. It wasn't massive, like it was a big party. And I remember they had these like super giant Air Force Ones you could stand in. I've got to dig up the photos, but they got my sneaker collection for that. Um, so that was cool. I don't think I DJed the event, or maybe I did. I think I also DJed at the event too. But that was cool. That was so super cool. I've got to ask. So you collect sneakers? Yeah, yeah, I'm a low key collector. I wear my joints, so that's see that I can't wear mine. I buy shoes and I just You're can't wearing, wear them. Like, I like to, um, yeah, man, I, I definitely like to wear my shoes. There's some I won't wear in clubs, but I definitely like to wear my sneakers. And if you don't wear them, the soles break off anyway. Well, the thing is, I think I, I, I'm keeping mine for like special occasion sneakers. So, like, maybe I when I do that. But then there's never a special occasion good enough. So some, I just learned you've just got to start wearing them, you know? Yeah, I don't know. There's there's just something everyone asks me. Like my family always is like, are you going to wear this pair? And I'm like, I don't think so. Maybe I'll just hold on to them. No, I wear them, but I'm super like, you know, people come near me, I just kind of casually just put a hand. <laughs> keep them from, you know, I'm very good. At, I, I can get in and out of a club without messing my shoes up. Do you have a favorite pair? Uh, not really. Uh, I like a lot of Jordan 3s, Jordan 4s, and 5s. Um, I've only got one pair of Yeezys. The, I don't even know the name of them. The dad shoe kind of ones. Yeah. Um, but I just like cool sneakers, bro. I just love um, always has been a thing. You know, they say you're into sneakers when the first thing you decide is which shoes you're going to wear before the rest and the rest you choose is just based on the shoes you want to wear. Yeah. Well, I just got this thing called like a kicks case. I can carry like four things of sneakers, four pairs of sneakers in it. Um, so I, I take that with me when I'm traveling. I, I got off, I was in Perth a week or two back and I got off the plane super tired and I left it on there. And I went to the Qantas lounge, made a coffee. I was chilling. I was on the phone with my friend. And I was just like, I raced back and I saw the stewardess walking off with his bag over shoulders like that's mine. <laughs> yeah, so, please yeah. don't take those. Now I'm tape I'm like connecting it to my backpack so I can't I can't forget it. I do love hearing what rappers do with their sneakers though. Um I remember hearing a, a Fat Joe story where like he bought two pairs of the same sneakers and he wore them that. he wore them when they came out and then he'd wait another 12 months or 2 years. And then he'd rock them again. Everyone would be like, where the fuck did you get those? But he was just sitting on the sneakers for two years just so he could rock them and no one else had the shoe. Yeah, I'd done – I mean, I've done something sort of similar where I've bought a pair of sneakers. I've got these grey Air Force One mids with a white swoosh and like a white sole, which I loved. And I remember buying them and then I must have been somewhere else and I saw them and I, I was like, I forgot I had them. 
And so I bought them twice. So then I had one pair that I could sort of wear around regular and one pair for special occasions, you know. I don't lick the soles the way Fat Joe does, though. Like, I don't care if it's new or not. That's his thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just all part of it. Like, you just, like, there's part of, like, hip-hop is more than just the music. It's the culture. It's, like, the the dress. Fat Joe is a legend, man. I got, on one of the super fests Fat Joe was in, I was super excited about Fat Joe. And he was fucking dope live, man. Yeah. I mean, he is one of those guys who's been, I mean, he's he's worked with literally the greats ever. And he's yeah. one of the greats. He, he's one of them. Yeah, he's, he's one of them. Like, I think Fat Joe is super underrated. I think Fat Joe is an artist that, that is has got better with time. I'm not saying that he wasn't always dope, like he, but he has elevated what he's doing. And I think he still does. And I think he's an artist now as he's, you know, a little older and, and, probably more mature in, in a way like i feel like now fat joe maybe publicly as well it kind of like almost pokes fun at himself like we're seeing a much more fun side of fat joe and that's some real man shit because like you know when people are always trying to be on some super tough guy 24 7 shit that's kind of insecure you know what i mean like everyone's you're not angry 24 hours a day hopefully you know so yeah well- man i, I got nothing but but love for fat joe and, and even during the lockdown when he was doing his uh live streams and i think he's still doing them but like they were hilarious yeah i think it's it's interesting to watch his career because he obviously had don cartagena he was with big pun that was his like super like gangster he's like you know tough guy era and then after big pun passed away he started moving towards where he is now and you just see that evolution but i've always been a big fan of what he does and i think he's underrated in terms of the lyrical ability that he had like you know they always they always look at big pun and i always look at big pun but he did some amazing things on those joints like he was just out 100%. of this world yeah man 100 percent. did you did you get to speak to fat joe yeah yeah fat joe's very very cool he used to come and watch the show after he performed, he would stay out and watch everyone perform. And that year at Superfest, there was, um, if you can imagine, like if you visualize it here, this was the stage. And then sort of elevated up to the side was his DJ box where I was. And I had these foot pedal operated CO2 cannons that would like do the big, you know. And once he climbed around the front of, I guess, you know, my elevated DJ stage to be able to see the show, and I didn't know he was there. And I was getting ready for something, and I was about to fucking hit that pedal, man. I would, <laughs> I would have blown him up. But uh, nah, he's a super cool guy, and he's um, it was funny, man. He's in real life, he's a big. He looks like a big guy, obviously, but like, he's very tall, man. Like he's a big individual. I got a photo with him somewhere, and you know he's like a whole head bigger than me. So uh, yeah, he was super, super cool, man. Super cool. He strikes me as that guy. Actually, all the people you've worked with strike me as very cool. Like, you know, yeah, people some people have their days, you know, but um, but as no, we all generally do, everyone's cool. And, and it's like anything, you know, all these hip hop artists that we love and uh, you know love to see perform, they they love what they're doing too. You know, I've never met a hip hop artist that was like, I hate this shit, or I don't want to be here. You know, they're in Australia, they're making money, the weather is great. You know, if the weather's great here, chances are it's winter in the States. So they're happy to, you know, get away. Everyone treats them well. 
So it was, yeah, it was was a good time, man. I've definitely had a lot of good times. Do you have any like tours that you've got uh, at the moment in terms of big tours, like with artists coming down? Obviously, you know, people are starting to come down again, but is there any huge things in the works? Uh, Nothing tour related. Like it's not like, for example, um, I'm trying to think of somebody, but it's not like, you know, Kendrick's coming. Well, Kendrick is coming actually. He is um, coming in December. Kendrick is coming in December. Um, but no, I I haven't I haven't got anything like that in the works at the moment. And um I think, you know, even with those big tours, everyone's just trying to get them on and happening, you know, at this stage. Uh I've got a few festivals coming up in the summertime. Um uh in like yeah, September, October. And uh look, things are good, man. It's when you're a touring artist especially coming out of COVID, it was a little slow coming back because all the clubs are suddenly chock-a-block, so the venues themselves don't really need to get extra entertainment and they're all trying to cut their costs because they've done, they've had no business for a couple of years themselves, you know, so it is what it is, but it's it's definitely coming back strong now. Like I said, I was in WA. Uh, they did four shows over eight days, about a week or two back. This weekend, I'm playing Thursday at the Ivy in Sydney. Friday in Darwin and Saturday in Melbourne, so it's 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 getting back to being heavy. How do During you, Triple H, he's back. Yeah. <laughs> How do you negotiate deals like that? Is that like a tour that you're working on and figuring out the venue or like do you have deals in place? Like how does it work? I've always wondered how it works for like a touring artist who does so many shows, um, how you decide and how you negotiate those deals. Yeah, well, I've got a, I've got a booking agent. Uh, you know, I'm with Lucky Entertainment and they're amazing. And and I've been in this business a long time. And so I know most of the people pretty well and and sort of have deals in place. Um, but it's like anything, you know, if someone calls you and they say, hey, we want you to come here, you might be like, cool, the fee is X and then you need to get me there, you know. So if you want me to play on the moon for New Year's Eve, you know, I'm going to tell you a price and you're going to get me to the moon. And then, you know, if I'm going to be, in space for two weeks and there's two weeks of other shows I can't do. I'm going to factor that into my price and, you know, people are there to do business. It's, it's, it's pretty chill. Cause it's always interesting. Like I always find it interesting. The, the business aspect to the music industry. Cause like, like you will make art at the end of the day, but we also need to get paid. And, and like you said, you were talking about the Eminem show, they need to take the set apart. They need to bring it to the next city. So, like all those people that are doing those jobs also need to get paid. So, it's like a it's like a really complicated type of moving mechanism that that's always in the back of the the scenes. And as fans, sometimes, like I know personally, I forget that that even has to happen. Oh yeah, and like you know, I'm sure the tickets. From what I understand, the the M and M tickets may have all been around the two hundred dollar mark for the cheapest one. And, you know, 87,000 people at 200 bucks is a lot of money. But like you said, you got you to pay Eminem. You got to fly Eminem. You got to fly his manager. He had an orchestra or something like he had an incredible amount of people on stage. I wouldn't be surprised if hypothetically there could have been easily 100, 150 people with Eminem traveling. And then there's the stage. And so, you know, all, all that money goes somewhere. Um but yeah, man, it's a beautiful business, and um, my only advice to people, especially, you know, is you've got to, 
you want to get the business done before you do the show or, or make the music because you know especially for me if you're flying me to brisbane or to dj at your birthday or at a club or something i can't come and talk to you about the money after i've finished because you've already got what you want you know so everything's done beforehand you know money's exchanged and all that sort of business and everyone's happy and and the good thing then is all the business is out of the way and you can just enjoy enjoy the show you know yeah i think i think that's what a lot of people forget sometimes is like just the basics. Like, I mean, I like to listen to comedians and their kind of podcasts and it's so interesting because they may agree on a price and then the the people who run the like the stores or whatever, the places where you do the show, they'll go, hey, that wasn't a good set or we didn't sell out so we won't pay you as much as we agreed to pay you. And I just hear those stories and I'm like, fuck, I'm so glad that that, that – type of scenario really shouldn't happen but like it's just so weird to hear stuff like that yeah look and there's different ways to handle things like um you can like if you've got a club right and imagine it's i don't know it can hold two thousand people and you're flying me up and we've agreed on a fee now i don't know like if something happened touch wood i don't know something bad happened and and no one came Right, you know, you may have already paid me. Do you know what I mean? But if you're a good guy and, and something bad happened, and I want to do good long-term future business with you, I would probably say, "Listen, bro, I've got this date free in six weeks. Let's do it again and come back and do it for you." You know, so I think sometimes th- there's two sides to every coin. Do you know what I mean? And so you know, if I've never had it, I- I've heard of DJs that haven't done a great show and, and have, have given someone part of their money back or something like that. You know, but um, I've definitely, um, you know, I, I've had experiences where, I don't know, you, you might be somewhere in a city and something, like I said, something happens in town and people just don't come out. And, and you know, that that will guarantee you future work. You'll work with that guy for 10 or 15 years, you know. Um, where if you're just like, well, hey, that ain't my fault that a telegraph pole crashed into a car out the front of the club and no one could get in, like, fuck you, pay me. They'll pay you, but they'll never book you again. So, you know, sometimes it's worth you got to work my my belief is you got to work with people. You know. Well, yeah. Like I think 50 cent something said something very similar. I listened to his book Hustle Harder or Hustle Smarter and his stars deal for the show Power. He took a really small deal in terms of how much money he was making. I think it was like 6k an episode. Don't quote me, but around it was really small for what I mean 50 cents 50 cent he can sell out shows like no tomorrow. But his reason for taking such a small deal was because he saw long-term investment on the plan. That's what it is, yeah. I mean, I did that when I did my deal with Universal uh, for Blazon. You know, when I restructured the deal uh, as after we'd done a few successful albums, sometimes people want a big advance, which is the money you get paid at the beginning. And I, I wanted a bigger royalty rate, which is a bigger rate per album. Um but I was happy to take a smaller advance so that if it didn't sell, Universal hadn't paid me all this money that they couldn't get back. You know what I mean? So it was the same thing. It was a better long-term deal for everybody. There was less risk for them and there was more reward for me if it went well. So I'm all about that. Like, And I'm all about, you know, under-promising and over-delivering, you know? Um, and people got to make money. Like I've had people ring me, 
who I've never dealt with before, let's say. And and I've got certain minimum rates I'll do places. I remember once one guy rang me and he wanted me to play somewhere. Let's say it was Alice Springs, right? And he was offering me more than double what I would have quoted him, right? And I said, nah, let's do it like this. And I said half the price, which was what I wanted anyway. And the guy seemed shocked. And I was like, dude, no disrespect, but I don't think you've done the numbers right. Like if your venue can hold this many people and you're charging that much at the door, but you want to pay me this, you can't make any money off this. I need you to make money so that you want to get me back. And if you make money, then we can do this three times a year forever. You know, so that, that's my whole thing. I don't want to play some. I've never played anywhere just one time. I always go back. So now, like you said, we talk about deals and negotiation. It's all pretty easy because a lot of the places that I play at uh, is repeat business. What did he say after you like broke it down like that? He was cool. Like obviously, I was charging him less, but I, I, he was new and and um, I, I think he was a little, you know, excited and overly optimistic, which we all are, you know. And um, I think he appreciated it, and I think it did well. And um, yeah, we're still doing stuff to this day. Well, I think that's a smarter way, like you said. And, you know, next time, and he's going to get asked, you know, what was it like to do business with DJ Nino Brown? He's going to tell people, like, you know what, he actually helped me as opposed to just take the bag and walked away. So I think it's, like, also a brand thing of, like, you know, everybody in the industry knows each other. So why would you not protect the very thing that you're trying to sell, which is who you are as an artist, but also, like, at the end of the day, people like working with people that they like, like they're not going to book assholes. Hundred percent, a hundred percent. Well, I mean, hopefully, some people listen to that. I feel like sometimes they get distracted by like the hip hop version of like who they should be versus like you know who they actually are. And I think that's part of the challenge of being young when you come up is like you see all these people like put on a show or an act, but like at the end of the day. Being authentic is always going to get you further. A hundred percent, hundred percent. How is it DJing on the radio? I love it, man. Because, um, you know, I I guess I'm I made my name. I made my name um, in an era when being a very dope technical DJ was important. Um, nowadays, that's not so important for a couple of reasons, but. One of the main reasons is a lot of the trick mixing and uh, scratching that I love to do, it sounds best with golden era hip hop. So in the you know mid to you know from the eighties even right, a lot of the new music, a lot of the trick mixing, it doesn't suit that as well, you know, um, and nowadays at clubs in particular. You know, clubs are almost mini festival sort of vibes, right? So there's a lot more mic work. It's a lot more of a show. You're just sort of playing tracks. The crowds are singing, a lot of drop mixing. And being on radio, I guess, allows me to flex skills a little bit and um, do what you might call like mixed show DJing where I'm able to like, yeah, flex a little, scratch, mix, beat juggle, do a little trick mixing and then bring the song back and let the song ride out. And I think because... On radio, you're not really necessarily watching me, you're just listening. 
I can provide a more exciting listening experience that I wouldn't necessarily do live at a club, you know? So I love it, man. It allows me to, I guess, showcase more of what I love, which is great, you know? Yeah. Do you, do you feel the pressure come off? Like when they don't like you, when you don't have to have a physical presence as well, you just kind of like get in the zone. No, like I don't feel any pressure. It's funny. Back to that Eminem show, when people talk about it, like I say to people, like, you know, I walked straight out on that stage to 87,000 people before Hilltop Hoods came out. I used to do a little thing where I walked out the front, right up the front of the stage on the mic and just talked to everybody and really hype them up and then play for 10 or 15 before the Hoods came out. And I got no anxiety or I've, I've been doing this a long time. I, I love it. If anything, it makes what I do better. If I think people are watching me, um, it actually makes me perform better. So uh, they're both cool. Like I sort of like it. I can come in in my pajamas and just knock out a radio mix. Um, like this is my studio in Sydney. So I've got all my, you know, I've got my turntables over here, record, everything's here, all the stuff. So I, I just come in here and um, get it done, man. It's so weird because I said to my friends recently that like when I was at uni and when I was at school, I always liked – presenting like that was my favorite type of like if you're going to test me make me get up in front of the the crowd and just present whatever it was i don't don't really care and that was always my favorite type because i knew i could kill it but regardless i always feel nervous like beforehand and then as soon as i open my mouth it's like all the nerves are gone and i control the room it's it's weird because i feel like a lot of people when they look at you and being able to do stuff that you do it would petrify them. Just the idea of it to be able to be so composed in front of so many people. Yeah, maybe. I never really thought about it like that. But um, it's like anything you adapt, you get used to it. You know, like I haven't had a day job since I was very, very young, um, just out of school. You know, I've been DJing a long time professionally and uh, I, I love what I do. So um, yeah, it's nothing to me. It's it's always always good vibes. Is the advice just do it, like just practice? Yeah, yeah, like whatever you want to do in life, you know. But especially with DJing or, or hip hop stuff, like, uh, I think you know, I, it's taken me a lot of hard work and practice to get to where I am. There are some people that are just naturally gifted. Uh, I'm part of a DJ crew called the Chief Rockers, and um, beast mode formerly known as dj samurai like he's naturally gifted like this guy like i, I see him sometimes we do shit together and i'm just kind of like fuck this guy like he's just naturally gifted and you know everything that i do i feel like i've got to really work for it um so what i'm saying by that is you can be naturally gifted and, and, and that's amazing and you can also work for it you know like uh just just put your mind to it and dedicate it i'm a big believer in the whole 10,000 hours thing, um, you know, you put your 10,000 hours in, you become a master. Agreed. I 100% agree. Uh, that, okay, so I was looking through your videos, obviously, before we we started recording, and there's a video that I came across and it took me a while to figure out where the where it came from, which TV show, but you've got a, a track called Make It Twerk, and I was like, Fuck. Oh yeah. Fuck. <laughs> I, I didn't I forget where where this 
where, where which show it came from, and then I realized it's from Ray Donovan. Ray Donovan, yeah, yeah, yeah that and, was funny. And I was just like, "Geez, this is the most random shit I've ever seen." Like, it works so well. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I recommend checking it out. But um, it's literally an old man going to like a library computer, and then obviously it's twerking. But like, did you? He, he liked girls twerking. He yeah. loved that shit. And he liked uh, African chicks. That's what he said. Yeah, he, well, yeah. He liked African American women. He was a, a white Irish American guy, and and he loved, um, you know, girls shaking their booty and twerking and stuff. And uh, I just thought it'd be a funny thing. Like I, I made that. I mean, I didn't edit it up, but I got all the bits of footage together, and uh, one of my buddies edited that up. So yeah, that was funny, man. That, that record was not really like I ended up putting it out as a song, but it was originally more just like a bit of a party break thing I'd play when I was DJing, and people liked it. So, excuse me, put it out. Yeah, well, it definitely made me laugh. So definitely, anyone just check it out. Like, it's it's not like the highest budget ever. It's like super oh, simple, no, no, but the, it works. It was trash, bro. Like, we all those ladies twerking, we ripped all that off YouTube. Like, I did that in Sydney Airport. I. I found the clip. Everything came from YouTube. I found the clip of um, it was Ray Donovan's dad. I can't remember what his name was, the character, but he. I, I just grabbed it all off YouTube and put it all in an email. I'm like, hey, do this, do this, do this, and my guy nailed it. Yeah, I, I'm just impressed by the creativity. Honestly, it always surprises me. But do you have music More videos? Do you have music videos on the way? Um, I'm. Considering doing some new ones, I've actually been working on an album through COVID. I've, I've coincidentally just finished, and I'm thinking about doing a couple of videos. Uh, I did one video a few years back for a song um, called Booty Clap, and um, that was cool. It was actually funny. I was supposed to do – I've written a syllabus for a DJ, uh, for music teachers to teach DJing to students at schools. And I go to school sometimes and present the, the the information to the teachers. And I remember once getting cancelled by a Catholic school because they saw this booty clap video <laughs> on my Facebook page at the time. Um, it's nothing, and the thing is, nothing wild. The girl had leggings on and was not, you know, doing anything too crazy. But I've done that one video. But um, yeah, music video is a lot of hard work, man. Sometimes that's it's one thing like I definitely say I, I, I don't enjoy being at a music video. People think like they look insane, obviously the finished product, but that can be a week's worth of nine hour days, ten hour days, you know. Yeah, Especially just, for the female artists, like with the outfits and the makeup, like man, those ladies work hard. People don't know, man. Yeah, they do. do yeah. And, you know, for guys, it's pretty simple. Like a hoodie, some like trackies or whatever, some sneakers and just some some jewellery and you're, you're set to go. But, yeah, some of them pretty are light. so intricate. Like there are so many music videos that I look at that are crazy and the budgets on them must be huge. Yeah, the new Create the Kid video is insane. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's nah. got, um, it's, it's, it's insane, man. Shouts to Create the Kid. Yeah. Uh, like I think Dax, there's a, a rapper Dax. He does some awesome videos. He does like freestyles and stuff, and he's also look like so much budget. Like I'm just always impressed by the artistry of them being able to like have this vision put together. Obviously, we talked about Eminem, but Eminem's done some awesome videos. Like 
Um, yeah. All the big artists do some some great videos. There's just like this level of artistry that they seem to tap in visually as well as like sonically. 100%, man. Well, talk to me about your coming year. So like obviously we're about halfway through the year. Um, we're kind of like, you know, on the way out of COVID. I mean, we're starting to talk about like monkey pox or whatever the fuck we're talking about now, but it feels like, you know, the world is opening up. Um, people are, are moving past COVID, but like, what does the rest of your 2022 look like? Um, I've just finished working on an album. Uh, I need to come up with a title for the album, um, but I've got 10 new songs and I'm going to use four of my songs I've released in the last sort of 18 months. Uh, I just released a track about six weeks ago called Closer uh, with my brother Arona Main, and that features Seo, who's a Ghanaian artist based out of Canberra. And if you haven't heard Closer, it's like on all the digital platforms and super dope, man. Um, and you can't miss it. Literally, you put in DJ Nino Brown, it's the first one there. You're not going to miss it. Yeah, Closer's dope. That's the first single off the album. Uh, I've got new records coming. I've got everyone on there, man. I've got... Um, Miss Tandy, we got Babyface Mal. Uh, it's Queen uh, Queen P, Asia Miller, my guy Napoleon, Big Skis, Timomatic, um, B Wise. There's a lot of a lot of artists, man. A lot of dope artists. Like I got my guy Little Spacely. I don't want to forget anybody, but yeah, it's it's gonna be hot. So I'm just working out the right way to put that out at the moment, and um, I'm hoping to have that out end of October, early November. So it'll be a, a nice spring drop. Yeah, man. Like heading into summer. Yeah, big summer record um, with Free Soul. There you go. Everyone will, will make sure you check that out. But I only have one more question for you, and it's the only question yeah, that man. I plan on the podcast. It's probably going to be the hardest one, but if you had to recommend one album that everybody should listen to at least once, cannot be your own work, can be any genre of music, what would it be? Easy. Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z. Damn, that was quick. It's been a while since I had a quick, quick answer. Usually they're like mulling over it for a bit. Look, um, I'm a huge Pusha T fan. Pusha T is probably my favorite rapper next to Jay-Z. And um, his latest album is insane. You heard it? You must have heard it. Yeah, well, I, I've been obsessed with Diet Coke for like, I've just been playing it on repeat. It go. sounds so good. Yeah, I've been smashing that on the radio mixes. Like that, that's definitely a joint. But um, that whole album is a phenomenon, but I feel like reasonable doubt. I feel like it took me, it took me almost 10 years to really understand reasonable doubt. When reasonable doubt first came out, I had just started DJing in terms of, um, that was 96 and I was very young and I I was, I guess when I listened to music at that point, I was listening to it almost like how would I play this song when I DJ? And I think sometimes I almost missed really absorbing the music. and But I remember just listening to it on repeat for years and years and years, you know, and i got all kinds of friends from all kinds of walks of life and I started picking up on what he was talking about. And, um, his his metaphors and just the way he talks about certain things so creatively, and you know Jay Z is not the guy that says, "Hey, I've got a big bag of cocaine, I'm going to sell it like this." Like he's 
you know, very creative in the way he, he uh, puts the information out, man. But yeah, I think reasonable doubt because yeah, that that laid the blueprint for a lot of guys like your Pusha T's and and people like that. So yeah, and it definitely laid the blueprint for himself. Fucking listen to reasonable doubt. And the evils produced by DJ Premier is out the of this evil. world. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I can remember. I can remember most of the lyrics. He's like, you know, he started feeding the pennies till the shit started to make sense, and all those double meanings, you know. Because everyone talks about you know the blueprint as one of the best, but I, I, I agree with you personally. I think Reasonable Doubt is my favorite Jay Z album. Like, there's just something so raw and real about it that I've always kind of been encapsulated by. I think. I mean, look, that'd be a whole. We could have a whole podcast talking about the best Jay Z album, but. Look, the blueprint is definitely up there, and I, I wouldn't even say Reasonable Doubt is definitely the best Jay Z album necessarily. But like Jay Z says, he spent 27 years of his life living, and then he made Reasonable Doubt, and there was just so much in that album. And I think what he did do in that album that maybe he's never done to that level since is just all the metaphors and the things that he's talking about. And I think you need to live life a little bit to truly understand it, you know. And I guess 10 years after it was out, my career was definitely in full swing. And I remember at the time I had the latest Audi A4. It was like an $80,000 car. I remember like driving in this car and just listening to to Reasonable Doubt and just things he was talking about. And, it, you know, it start, I had a little bit of money at that stage. So it was starting to... Um, resonate in ways that it hadn't before you know yeah i mean it's weird because i've I've spoken about jay-z before but he's definitely one of those people and it's tough because he's had such a long career but he seems to adapt really well to where he's at in life like he's not one of those artists who gets lost in the past like he seems to kind of the music he puts out represents who he is at that time and I think that's one of the reasons he's so amazing is because he doesn't get lost in, like, who he was. He just is who he is currently. For sure. And even on Reasonable Doubt, he was a troubled soul where he knew he was selling drugs and it was hurting people and making his community sick and unwell. And I feel like even everything he's doing now, it's sort of his way of um, making it right, you know? in a lot of ways but yeah he's deep man like i'll tell you jay-z story so um i was djing for a new zealand group called smash proof and um there were three three rappers from new zealand and they were on it was this rock the block tour which was uh jay-z rihanna and neo and um it was in the contract that the and it's quite of a it's quite a standard thing but you know usually the support groups have got to leave the backstage area once you performed. And people are always like, why would you do that? But, you know, backstage is for where you get ready for the show before and after. So once you're done and you come back to your room and you get ready, you get the fuck out, you know. And Jay-Z was there. Beyonce was there. They weren't married, so she was his girlfriend. And it wasn't really public. Like, it wasn't like she was on stage performing. She was just there as as his girl, you know. So they want to be able to walk around unbothered by people. You know, they want fucking Nino Brown say, can we get a photo? You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, and I wanted to meet Jay like 
so bad, so bad. And I remember, um, and and Smash Proof with like some young guys, and they were kind of wild guys, man. They were some wild boys at the time. And I remember I used to stand in the doorway of the dressing room and wait for JJ had to walk past when he came in and I would just fucking stand there, you know, <laughs> like I was supposed to be there. And I used to always, when I saw him coming down the hall, I would always like lean back and be like, shut the fuck up. Jay's coming, you know? And uh, I just sort of stand in the doorway and he would always walk past and like, give me a fist bump. And um, it was just fucking so cool, man. And you never washed your hand again. No, I can still smell him. <laughs> Pause. Um, no, he was, yeah, he was awesome, man. And um, shouts to DJ Green Lantern. He was DJing for Jay on that tour. And um, I'd, I'd met and toured with Green Lantern before. So we were always chopping it up and he was super cool. And um, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was, And because we acted so cool, no one ever kicked us out. And I had a few funny things. Like I remember once being kind of like side of the stage and I remember someone bumped me and I looked and it was like, you know, Beyonce would be standing there, you know, and, and people were always like, did you take a photo? Or did you talk to them? But like, you know, it's not the right time. You know what I mean? They're, they're hanging out watching the show. So, you know, they, they'd say hello. Like, it's funny. Like, she's like super nice, man. She said hello to everybody. She's and like, also you know, you're people. working in, as well. Like, you know, it's not like you're there as like a fan who just bumped into them. Like you're, you're, you're still there doing a job. Professionally, yeah. But yeah, you know those people that are just like super nice to everybody. Like she was just gave off a great energy, very nice. I mean, you know, I never said more than three or four words to her, but like she was super cool. But yeah, it was chill and um, a phenomenal experience, man. But I, I love Jay Z. Like that guy is just—he's incredible. Like he's just so fucking cool, man, on every level. And everyone have their names on their dressing rooms. And he would just have like the Batman thing one day or <laughs> Superman the next day. It was just like always some super cool shit every day, man. But yeah, he, he's a living legend. Well, I cannot agree more. And I think that's an awesome way to wrap up the show. But another legend came on the show, DJ Nino Brown. And as we said, stay tuned for stay tuned for his album dropping in October or November. But in the meantime, check him out on Spotify, check him out on iTunes, check him out on IG as well. Um, super amazing guy. And as he said, he's doing lots of tours around Australia. So if you want to jump on those tours, make sure you, you, you buy tickets and, yeah, and make sure you support. You. I'll be at a city near you and shout out to the crew, the chief rockers um and everybody beast mode nike kimani mix king mo id my guy bass cadet and of course black goat and uh yeah man shout out to everybody mix king um but yeah man thank you for having me on your platform and um yeah check out the music dj underscore nino brown on ig i don't do the tiktok dances too much man that's not my thing but um it's all love that's all right. We'll throw some promos on TikTok through the Hip Hop Hustle. Anyway, um, short clips of this. But as I said, appreciate you yeah, on the show. Appreciate I can't speak. You couldn't speak earlier in the show. I appreciate have, appreciate you coming on the show. Takes me three attempts sometimes. But uh, once yeah, drops, once the album drops, I'll come back and we'll chop it up. You can give me some reviews. One hundred percent. We can do it in person. I got the studio ready to go. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to the show. Please like and subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for upcoming podcast news.
Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon under Hip Hop Hustle for exclusive content and to help support the show. Bye for now.